What levels would you go in order to protect people you've never met before in your life? Would you throw a few pounds to a charity in the hope that they would spend it right? Or would you roll up your sleeves and get involved yourself? If you did, what consequences would you pay for your actions? It's the life of a Cork woman which answers these questions for us. This is her story. In the Cork village of Jimmy League, in 1895, a child was born. Her name was Kate McCarthy. She was the first of nine children to Daniel and Mary McCarthy. From a very early age, she showed she had a great interest in religion. This came largely through an uncle she had who was a priest. Given the customs in rural Ireland at the time, it was decided she would be the family's representative to become a servant of God and at age just 18 she became a nun. She took the name Sister Marie Lawrence to be her religious name when she qualified. When choosing which order to join, she decided the ancient order of the Franciscans, who had a strong foothold in her county, would be the right one for her. Cork and the Franciscan order have had a shared past. They first landed in Ireland through Yall about 700 years ago and made the county their home. They were led to Yall by their dying leader, St Francis, who believed Ireland to be the home of God. Because of their belief in Ireland as the Holy Land, they were granted great lands by the wealthy Irish and they set up incredible monasteries and places of worship, which can still be seen across the county today. When Henry VIII arrived over to cause havoc, the Franciscans were butchered and damned. Their churches burnt to the ground and used as examples in great public executions. The grounds in which University College Cork are built today is built on an old ruin of a Franciscan church which was torn to the ground by the British forces. On top of it, they built much of the old buildings of the college which still stand today. The Franciscans, however, managed to escape the city at this time and built Kilcray Friary as their new home near Ovens. They used the underground Cork tunnel system, moving through caves to build the friary with the rubble from their old home of worship. Kate's work as a nun brought her into a life of a missionary and when World War I broke out in Europe, she worked as a religious nurse in France, caring for the injured Allied soldiers and the innocent civilians who had been caught in the horrors of war. In 1918, she was in a town called Bethune, north of Paris, and she watched helplessly as the German war machine powered through it as though it was never there. As they created rubble of the town, Kate worked furiously to help as many of the wounded as she could escape. She cared deeply for all those who sought help during the war, and remarkably was one of the very last people to escape the town, even after the Allied soldiers themselves had retreated. She spent the next few years moving around France and other parts of Europe, tending to those who had been severely injured during the war, and in order to offer a break from the brutality she was living through, her superiors of the Franciscan Order sent her to a convent in Louisiana from 1920 to 1939. Here she was able to live peacefully, going about her day fulfilling her duties to the church and the poor of Louisiana. She was known to be very kind to all, and was never in a rush away from someone should they wish to talk to her about anything from weather to politics. She had a great love of people, God and the world. 
Then, in 1940, as the world turned on its head again, she returned to Bethune in France, as the country fell to Hitler and his Nazi army. Initially, she was sent here once again to care for the wounded soldiers in a prisoner of war camp. Each night, as she lay in her bed, she began to hear whispers spread among certain patients. They spoke of hidden soldiers stuck in the area who could not get out. They spoke of a secret movement to counteract the Nazi efforts. They spoke about revolution. She began to become very interested in what they were saying and the ideas they were sharing. She was particularly interested in the rumours that they were sharing about the hidden soldiers in the city. She approached a number of them and after gaining their trust they told her of La Résistance, the French movement against the Nazi army. During her time in La Résistance she worked with a large amount of women who were leading the fight back. She became great friends with the founder of the group, a lady called Sylvette Lelou. Sylvette owned a garage and had her own car. Sylvette started the war as a pacifist, but when her husband had been shot down in his aircraft by the Nazis and killed, she quickly became radicalised against their mighty army. They met in the prisoner of war camp, as Sylvette had stated she was there to help the wounded, but was actually there intelligence gathering for her own movement. As they became close through their work helping the soldiers, they began to go for meals and coffees together in a nearby cafe. Here, they spent hours upon hours sharing what they had learned from the soldiers and discussed their ideas to help free France. The two women were determined that if no armies were going to free the people, they would simply have to do it themselves. One fateful night, as they taught late into the evening, they failed to notice the cafe empty around them. One by one, the customers left, but the two women were so engrossed in their planning, it never occurred to them that the quieter the cafe got, the louder their voices became. Their conversation came to an abrupt stop when they heard the locks in the cafe door click. They sat anxiously as a woman made her way towards them with a very stern expression. Kate looked to her friend and was met with an expression that said, Say nothing, this might be it for us. The woman who locked the doors was cafe owner, Angela Tarvedu. She took a chair which had been stacked in a nearby table in preparation for cleaning and pulled it up next to the two women. She sat with them and said, You were planning an escape of the trapped men, yes? The two women said nothing. She looked at them both again and said, You were planning an escape of the men, yes? I will help you. She explained to them how she had a cellar which was accessible from the outside through an enclosed yard and should Sylvette reverse her car up to the cellar door, nobody would see the soldiers getting in or out of the car. Then from here, a truck delivering supplies could also pull up to this point and the soldiers would climb back onto the truck without anybody spotting them. Inside the cellar were supplies for the cafe such as industrial bags of flour and barrels of oats. The soldiers could hide in them whilst awaiting collection. That night, the three women conducted a plan to get the locations of the hidden soldiers from the prisoners of war. They were going to get them out in the boot of the car 
into the cafe without anybody noticing them. From there, the trucks would take them to Marseille and then on to Portugal. They also discuss ways to get some of the men out of the camps and across the border. Whilst it seemed a wild ambition for the three ladies to take on the might of the Nazi prison guards and the Gestapo patrolling their movements, this trio of brave women, led by Kate, freed 200 British officers and soldiers. Kate's role brought her to the attention of the high command of Moose de la Homme, a resistance group. She was brought on board as an intelligence officer, smuggling secrets across France. As she became more and more influential in the movement, she began to fear for her safety. She became nervous if anyone knew, knowing if her role was ever exposed, then she would have to suffer the worst of the war. On June 18th, whilst working on a quiet ward treating a wounded soldier, she heard heavy footsteps running towards her. She felt a knocking turn in her stomach. Something told her this wasn't right. She felt a vacant weight pressing her shoulder as she closed her eyes and prayed for a moment. She paused for a breath and slowly turned to meet a male colleague who said, Sister Kate, there's a guy in the hospital and he has a very strange accent. He claims to be British and wants to get onto the escape line. Kate looked him firmly in the eye and said, I will go to meet him and you are not to follow. You must treat these men and ensure they are as comfortable as they can be and it is your duty as a human to make sure they see home. Her colleague was confused, but Kate insisted he must promise this to her. He agreed and she walked alone to meet the British soldier. When she met him, she did not greet him. She simply asked what was his name and where did he come from. He said his name and said he was British. Kate paused for a moment and with her eyes tightly closed she responded You are not British, that is not a British accent He replied, oh no, I'm Canadian, with British parents I mean Kate responded, no, you are a spy, you will leave now The man walked out and Kate bent to her knees, tightly gripped her rosary beads and began to pray it is said she gripped them so tight that blood dripped from her hands and the blood trickled down her wrist into her sleeve and rested by her elbow. She began to cry and muttered, Please, I am not ready. There's so much to be done. As she reached the end of a Hail Mary prayer, she felt two arms link under her armpits and lift her up. She kept her hands tightly grasped together with her beads inside I was lifted to such a height that the tips of her toes lingered across the tile floor as she was walked out of the building. When she finally opened her eyes, she saw a British soldier, now in full Gestapo uniform and with the truck door open behind him. You will come with us now, Kate, he said. Kate spent the next year with no human contact of any kind. She was placed in solitary confinement in a local jail for the entire year before her trial. The only whisper of life outside her cell was the leather glove she saw delivering breakfast every morning and then collecting the tray an hour later. When her trial approached, 
she was interrogated five times by senior members of the Gestapo. Each interrogation more grueling than the last. On one occasion, they hung her from the roof by each of her fingers. She never spoke a word during each of her interrogations. She eventually saw trial, and without being allowed to speak or any evidence being displayed, she was immediately sentenced to death. Awaiting her execution, she spent the next month in her lonesome cell. She prayed it would be a peaceful end, and thought often about her home in Jumalig. In her mind, she was returning to the open spaces of home, breathing the air, walking the roads and sitting on the Bantry coast as she did as a child. To toy with her, occasionally the door to her cell would open and each time she wondered, is this it now? Then, as many other political prisoners did, she vanished. Nacht Noble, or Night in Fog, was brought into force by Hitler, which was a legal directive to remove all members of the resistance from existence. Before the directive had been placed, Kate's friends in the resistance had been planning an escape attempt, but it was too late now. The Cork woman was now another victim of Hitler's regime. The sun rose and the sun set, and months went by, and there was still no understanding of what happened to Kate. Her friends Sylvette and Angela were two arrested shortly afterwards and were taken away. The two women by chance met again 1,500 kilometres away from where they'd last seen Kate, in a concentration camp. It was called Ravensbrook and it was women only. In getting there, they had been moved through a series of camps, tortured mentally and physically along the way. They spoke in Morse code to each other along the camp pipes and discussed their daily ordeal with each other. Then, as Sylvette sent a message to her friend saying she hoped Kate had died and was not living through this torture, a series of taps came along the pipe from a different corner of the camp. It translated to La Resistance. She tapped back, who is this? Four letters returned. K-A-T-E The following day, the three arranged to meet near a fence to see each other once again. Kate explained she too had been tortured along the way and had seen some awful things. They made a pact with each other that they would resist everything, even if it meant death. The original inspiration for their fight had not left them and they wanted the innocent to live. Kate at this stage had found a new bitterness in her soul. Her experience across the 1,500 kilometre journey had instilled a ferocious hate in her heart. In the camp, she was given the job of stitching paratroopers' uniforms for Nazis. Having examined the designs, she realised should she leave eight strategic stitches out of the shoulders of the uniform, should the soldier pull his parachute, it would immediately rip off his back and he would fall to his death. It was estimated that she was responsible for 40 deaths a day due to this method. 
By chance, due to the amount of deaths and executions in the camp, the three women ended up in the same hut and shared a bed sleeping head to toe next to one another. This formed a greater bond between the three and strengthened their morale during the toughest times. They had to do anything they could to muster up enough physical and emotional strength to get through each day. At this point, Ravensbrook had built a gas chamber and it was responsible for the death of 5,000 women. Kate had started to become very weak and this was her passport to the gas chamber, as if she could not work she was no use to the Nazi effort. Whilst lined up against the side of her hut, she was selected to go to the chamber by a doctor called Adolf Funkelmann. As the group of women marched towards the chamber, a scuffle broke out between a soldier and a prisoner and as they fought, Kate ducked under a kitchen trolley and hid. The prisoner was shot dead and the rest were marched into the chamber. Kate waited and as she watched as the women were sent to their deaths, when the coast was clear, she snuck back to her hut. She was unfortunate to be selected a second time a few days later, but on this occasion, she was told to go back to collect her belongings as she would need them for where she was going. The Nazi soldiers had grown tired of the clean-up afterwards. Knowing where she was to be sent, she snuck under her bed and lifted herself up using the corners underneath it. Using any strength she could muster, she held on so tightly until the soldiers left. Given the poor record-keeping and the randomness of selection for death, nobody noticed she was missing from the lineup. Some time passed, and for a third time she was selected again to go to the chambers. This time, it was a bigger group than normal, as the Nazis were growing tired of having to manage so many prisoners. The record-keeping began to improve, and they had to register with the senior officer before going. They were told this was for passports to be issued. As she waited in the corridor outside the office on the second floor, she spotted an open window and slipped out and went back to her hut again. On a fourth occasion, she was picked again for death, but as she was marched towards the chamber, she spotted a group of women being marched the opposite direction to go do manual labour. As the two groups came near, she swiftly altered her stride, spun quickly and marched in the other direction with them. In the six years it operated, the camp was responsible for 90,000 deaths. In the spring of 1945, Kate was rudely awoken by shouting outside her hut. Being one of only 3,500 left in the camp, which once held 132,000 prisoners, shouting and any kind of commotion was unusual. She looked to the east, and in the sunrise she saw the Soviet Red Army marching towards her stern, unemotional and ready. They liberated the camp. Kate was severely malnourished and was carried onto the back of a bus by a young soldier. She wept as he laid her down and pressed her rosy beads against his forehead. She was placed on the very last bus to leave the camp and she was taken to Malmo in Sweden. She weighed just a little over four stone at this point. 
When she arrived in Malmo, she received treatment and it was feared she would be too weak to live. She was asked if she had any final wishes. She simply responded, I would like to go home now. She returned to Cork, where she was cared for by the other sisters from the Franciscan Order. They prayed with her nightly. She eventually made a remarkable recovery and later became the Mother Superior of the Hone and Home in Cork. She lived the rest of her earthly life there. She was awarded the Medaille de la Resistance by Charles de Gaulle. She also received the Palm to Victory from the British government. In 2014, in the Irish College in Paris, a plaque was unveiled in her honour. Today's music was written, performed and produced by Ryan O'Halloran. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to support us to create more, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash We The Irish. We The Irish is an Ireland Loves production. Ornus Anam Dum, Irv Magut, Slaninish.